Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ari McGee, joined by the three-headed Hydra. That is Jim Heskin. Still happy to be here. Tippa Warner. Also still happy to be here. And Nick Thacker. I was muted, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm here. <laughs> yes, yes. He's Nick's just here so he doesn't get fined in a very Marshawn Lynch way. He's here against his will, but I think he'll still participate well. So what's going on, guys? Anything good happening? No? Nobody's interested? Well, I'll tell you what's good with me. I finally got around to watching more of the authors in the master class, you know, that I got last year. I kind of made it a point to watch a lot of the disciplines, you know, the chefs and things like that. And some of those authors, man, they got some good stuff. If you're out there and you're listening, if you're one of our five listeners, I really recommend you listen to master class. You guys check that stuff out. I did. Yeah. I've seen a few of them. Right on, man. Right on. I've seen a few. I like Neil Gaiman, but I could listen to him talk about anything. Yeah, he's really good at it. He's really good. And, you know, I'm not a huge reader of Dan Brown, not because I hate on the guy like everyone does for some reason. I just have only ever read the Da Vinci Code. But his masterclass is excellent. It's very, very good. Very good. So I don't know. I'm just over here buzzing because I'm watching writing stuff and it's making me excited. So in any event, we will put my excitement aside before it gets too awkward and we will get into the news. Nailed it. Well done, Mr. Thacker. Well done. So the first question I've got for you guys today, I got an email from a former guest on the show, Kate Greenfield, and she's doing well. She's writing and everything's going good for her. She asked if we had looked into the Amazon's beta of the hardcover print situation that they have going. And I'll admit that I haven't. I've never really pursued hardcover books, but I thought maybe you guys would know more about it. Are you guys up to speed on the beta test of that? What's up with that? I got into it, but I've been waiting waiting to do all my hardcovers or hard copies through Ingram, so I haven't tried it yet. Same thing. I was really excited about it, so I jumped all over it to try to get into the beta and got in, and then I haven't even clicked create hardcover yet. I haven't done anything with hardcovers yet, but I'm excited about it. I mean, it's always great to have another price option on the page, you know, especially a higher price option to make my $4.99 ebook look more attractive. But I wouldn't expect to sell a lot of hardbacks. I mean, I don't sell a lot of paperbacks, so I can't imagine I would sell more of something more expensive that's mostly the same product. Mm. And now I don't know, would you still have the same royalty problems with the hardback like you would if you had a $19 ebook would you be in the 30% range did they tell you guys about that at all no I mean, the royalties are going to be a little bit different I'm not sure how they work but if I remember right the print cost of these things is a lot higher than paperback so I imagine your take-home pay is going to be a little lower but yeah like Jim said it's another product to have out there so if you've got more time to just create more versions of something then this is it <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe we'll snag the elusive hardcover audience and that'll propel you into. Maybe that's it. That's the one thing we're all missing is uh, those hardcovers. You know, hardcovers, they're great for giveaways or maybe something like a 10th anniversary edition of a book gets a hardcover, you know, with a Q&A in the back. 
anytime you can make people pay twice for the same content. <laughs> yeah, right on, right on. Well, okay, well, maybe we'll have more about that as we go through it, and I'll see what these guys have to say about it later down the road. Okay, the next story that we have here is from BBC News. Sorry, Nick. And it is Netflix lands golden ticket by buying the Roald Dahl estate. Apparently, they're buying the IP that is, you know, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the BFG, Matilda, and things like that. That's interesting. I guess this is my question, okay? So for Netflix to buy it, you would think that they have to assume that there's enough legs in his library that they can make a profit. And we've had a few versions of Willy Wonka or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and things like that. BFG was just a big movie. What do you think that they're planning to do? Just reboot all this stuff? Or do you think they're going to go some different avenues with his catalog? Because I'll admit I'm an OG Matilda fan. The movie was excellent when the Trunchbull grabs Homegirl by her braids and Hammer throws her over the hedges <laughs> is amazing to me. But I don't know if I need to see that again. So what do you guys think? It does hold up, by the way. Danny DeVito is awesome <laughs> in it, as always. It's right a good on. movie. We just watched it with the girls. Here's the deal. My thing is, you've got a public company that has shareholders and a stock price. I believe that they are beefing up their stock price by purchasing assets. That's their job. They now are worth more because they own Rodal's estate. Before, if the estate was owned by some family, there's no expectation that that family would know what to do with it, right? There's no movies being made or anything unless they sell individual ones. But now that Netflix has it, everybody in the world looks at it and goes, wow, they can make a ton of money just making TV shows, you know, Matilda TV show, James and the Giant Peach TV show, whatever, and on and on and on. They don't even have to do it, is my point. They're worth more because they bought this. So it's just an asset play to me. I would love to see TV shows and movies. I don't think I'd want to see a screen version of what they say, Matilda the Musical. No, thank you. But there's other stuff they could do that I would watch. So, you know, good for them. We'll see what happens. Right on. Pippa, what do you think? Are you a James and the Giant Peach fan? I remember reading my way through all of the books when I was little. And this is actually making me think I should go back and read some of them aloud to Logan. That'd be awesome. That'll be awesome. We'll see what comes up for, for Telmet video and film. So, Yeah, yeah, agreed. Jim, you're not a Raw Dow fan, I can tell by your face. You're ready to stomp on our childhoods right now, I can see. No, he's one of my favorite authors. I've read several of his books to my kid, and I read everything when I was young. Hmm. Roald Dahl had a pretty interesting life on his own. I think this buying up his whole catalog is smart. I think it'll sell more books and it gives Netflix more children's content to go up against Disney Plus, which is, you know, it's Disney. So they have all the children's content. So Netflix wants to compete. They need more kid stuff. So I think this is smart all around. I think this is good. And hopefully more people will experience these books and these stories as a result. Right on, man. Right on. Well, I agree. Good stuff. So we'll see how it goes. I'm uh, holding out hope that Trunchbull 2.0 is still pretty awesome. So. We will see how that goes. Uh, the third story that we have today. Now, this was given to me by, I think, Nick. We kind of chatted about this offline in our Slack group. Well, I didn't, but I watched you guys chat about it. And it's about something that we've mentioned a few times, AI and audiobooks and kind of Skynet taking over and destroying us. And it looks like it's going to start here. So it's from Good E-Reader. The headline is Deep Zen partners with Ingram for AI audiobooks. 
So since I know you've been dipping your toe into this AI situation, Nick, why don't you kind of give me the premise about this and kind of what's going on with it? Okay, so this is pretty self-explanatory. There's artificial intelligence generated audio voices. And Deep Zen is IBM. I think it's IBM. Uh, well, I think they're using the IBM version. Most of the big players, Google, Amazon, are making some kind of API library that does this. So like Amazon has Poly. can't remember what Google's is called, but they're all pretty good. And they're getting better and better with neural nets and all that. There's a company that is kind of building out one of the APIs called DeepZen. Yeah, so DeepZen uses IBM's Power AI and Watson. Anyway, so what DeepZen did is they come in and they say, hey, we're going to make this really pretty looking interface to be able to create audio text-to-speech engine is what it is. And so you upload your file, your text, and it will read it and it sounds realistic. And then what they do, what DeepZen actually does that the other ones haven't quite done yet, is it gives you some ability to change inflection, just tweak it a little bit so it sounds more realistic. And in my opinion, they're a little bit more ahead of the curve than some of the other players. Now, DeepZen has partnered, it sounds like, with Ingram. And while nothing has really come of it yet, that's the next step. So you're going to be able to log into your Ingram Spark account or Lightning Source account and take your file that you've already uploaded and have it generated, uh, turned into an audiobook. And it's going to be essentially immediate. And it's, it's a lot cheaper than paying for a narrator. And how does this compare to Descript, which Nick, you turned me on to, which you can yep. upload your own voice and like create your own? That's the big differentiator is Descript will allow you to record your own voice. You know, you record your own voice and training their engine, and then you can do the same thing, but it spits out your voice instead. DeepZen is a little bit different in that you don't get to upload your own voice yet. They don't offer that. They've got some licensed voice actors and narrators that they're working with, but they actually will do some of that work for you on the back end. So when you upload your, your file, I got into their beta a long time ago. And what it is, is you just get access to this library where you just choose your voice and then you upload your book and they say, great, give us you know, a few weeks. And so somebody there, some human there is actually doing that inflection stuff and changing it and making it sound very real. Now it's more expensive because of that. It's like a deep Zen audiobook narration for about an eight hour, I think. It's about $100 an hour, I think, last I checked. So you're still looking at, you know, a thousand bucks to get a full length audiobook narration done, but it's considerably cheaper than doing a work for hire type thing. Okay. You guys have told me before that places like Findaway and Apple won't let you upload AI read things as your book. So would this eventually be something that they were trying to make the standard that you could use other places, or would this just be with Ingram? And people would be buying or clicking on something that they were aware was AI. Yeah, I mean, the goal here is for it to be undifferentiated. Is that the right word? Indistinguishable from a real human narrator. And like I said, these guys are putting in a lot of work on the back end to make it sound absolutely as good as possible. And my guess is there are probably already audiobooks done with AI that have been uploaded to Audible, Findaway, all those places, and they just don't know. It's a human on the other side listening to it deciding if it's the proper noise floor and spacing and all that stuff. One of the things that they're checking is to make sure it's not an artificial intelligence reading it. So if they can't tell, then you get through. Nobody cares. No one's the wiser. I was a little low on my pricing. Actually, I'm on the pricing page now. There's two tiers, I guess. Tier one is like their basic one. It's $160 an hour for tier one per finished hour. So if you have an 80,000 word manuscript, you're looking at about 1280. Tier two, if you've got 500 to 2,000 hours of audio you want to upload, you get to be in a higher tier. And that brings it down to a whopping 150 an hour. <laughs> mm, 
Mm. So it's still 1200 bucks. So it's not free. It's going to cost a little bit. It's going to be an investment here. But the whole thing is an interesting... I got with our friend Craig Hart and he runs an audio studio. And I was trying to pick his brain on this because this is a big deal in the audiobook narrators union. I guess there's a union for these guys. And they're all like, you know, we got to stop this. It's going to take our jobs and all that stuff, you know. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. But I think that there's a place and a case to be made for uh, someone like Craig Hart, who's got a voice that you would want to pay for. You can pay him to have his voice narrate your book, but it would be AI. So he can actually, instead of narrating one book a month, he could do a hundred books a month or whatever, making that much more money and doing way less work. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I guess we'll have to see. I still have been meaning to, to get Craig on with all of us sometime so we could chat about all things audiobook. I need to do that because I think he'd probably have a lot of good input into this. All right. Well, I guess we'll see how that goes. I'm still saying that it's going to be Skynet, but you futurist type folks that want to do that, you go for it. And uh, hopefully the blender kills you last. All right. So the fourth thing is not really a story. It's just more of a question that I kind of wanted to pose to you guys. I'm interested in villains this week. I'm interested in what makes a good villain. I'm interested in why someone would root for a villain. What do you have to do as an author to get someone to be excited about your villain and maybe not like them, but maybe understand them? So first, let me ask you guys, it could be a book. It could be a movie. Who are some of your guys' favorite villains? Pippa, you have a nefarious mind, I've noticed from your time in the, in the chair. <laughs> so I know you know about good villains. Let's see. Favorite villains. Uh, probably Melisandre from Kashiel's Dart would be a good one. Mm. Let's see. Someone like Killmonger in the Black Panther movies, I think, was a good one. Because you, you can go kind of two ways with a villain, right? You can make them legitimately have a very good point, which it, at times Killmonger does. Mm. Or you can just have them be out there being a villain because they want to be and they reject your petty moralizing. And either of those can be really well done. I like the elusive man from Mass Effect. Mm. Also has some good points. Also goes a little off the deep end. You know, other people. What are your... Okay, right on. Uh, Nick, what do you got, man? Well, who, who are your favorite villains? I really liked Siler from the TV show Heroes. I think Zachary Quinto is one of my favorite actors. I mean, I just love him as Spock as well. So he just does a good job acting it. But he's this charismatic, understandable person. You know, obviously he's got the past and all that, the broken past that leads to why he does what he does. But he legitimately just wants to figure out how people work. And so he cuts their head off and looks at the brain and, you know, kills them and stuff, but totally reasonable. And so he makes a really good villain for me for that reason. I love the Joker and I shouldn't have to clarify which Joker. We know Jared Leto should stick to music. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I love Heath Ledger's Joker. I mean, just the whole event of it all, you know, death, everything just all together makes this epic real life story. But if you didn't know anything else about him on screen, he's just incredible. But that's one that I think I don't know how to pull off as a writer yet because he legitimately has no redeeming quality other than you just like Joaquin Phoenix played it well, where you kind of wonder how he got to be the way he was. And that gives you some of that poignancy into his life. But for the dark Knight, I think this quote is, he just wants to watch the world burn. And you believe that you're just like, Oh, this guy doesn't really want anything. He just wants to F it up for Batman. It just makes this really cool story for me. So those are my two I'll throw out there. Right on. Jim, what you got, man? I think my favorite villain is Patrick Bateman from American Psycho from the Brett Easton Ellis novel. The movie's mm -hmm. great too, but when it comes to movies, you have the actors 
performance to weigh in. You know, I mean, I don't know if anybody would have liked Killmonger as much if it had been even played by Kevin Hart. You know, mm-hmm. probably wouldn't have been as effective in that mm-hmm. film. But I really like Patrick Bateman. Brett Easton Ellis's novel is so messed up that at some point you really start to relate to Patrick Bateman and you start to feel like, yeah, these people should die. And that's the part where you realize you're hooked. And I think what a good villain should be someone that you can almost relate to, you know, not exactly, but almost relate to right before they pull the rug out and do something horrific. Mm. A good villain should have a goal that is as important to that villain as the hero's goal is to the hero. And if you do that and communicate it to the reader, I think you'll get a villain that's worthy. Nice, nice. What about you, Nick? How much time do you spend kind of fleshing out your villains? Because when I was on Craig and Scott's show, we talked about villains a little bit. And when you write a series that has the same main character, you've got plenty of time to give the audience what you want to give them about your main character. But your villain may only take place in one book. So how do you make them what you want to make them so quickly? You got any shorthand or any secrets to that? One of the things that I do in my Harvey Bennett series is, I mean, we all know it's action adventure and the MacGuffin is usually a piece of technology, something prototype that could do a lot of good for the world, or it could do a lot of bad. Or if I do it really well, it can do a lot of good, but it will do a lot of bad in order to get there. So the ends don't quite justify the means. And if I've got something like that in the book and I give that to the villain, you know, Elon Musk is a good example, right? He's like a modern day. He could be a supervillain. He could be a superhero. We don't really know which one yet. Because it's like the middle of the novel. It just depends on what he does with his like Mars city. If he's like, hey, we're, I'm going to take some people, we're going to move to Mars. You can go a lot of different ways. You could say, all right, he's going to take just the rich people. Then you're like, wow, that's kind of a shitty thing to do. But you know, I guess whatever. Like, yeah, it probably costs a lot of money to get people there. Not quite a supervillain. But if he says, hey, we're going to start a Mars colony and anyone who wants to come can come. It's open to anyone in the world. And you have to race to get there. And if you don't get there, you all die. Um <laughs> It's like, okay, he's doing a good thing, you know, for certain people, but then everybody else dies, you know, for him to to pull it off. So I don't know. I think it's just one of the situations where if I can come up with a really good piece of tech or something that could legitimately do good for the world, and then I can give the villain a really, really good reason to hold it over people's heads. Like Jim said, you almost agree with him. You're like, oh, well, I can kind of see their point. Maybe they don't have to kill like 1.5 billion people to do it, but I can see their point. Something like that. I think that makes a good super villain. Mm, Right on. Now, Pippa, do you do things differently in like the fantasy kind of the epic kind of fantasy thing? Because I feel like fantasy has given us some really iconic type of villains, really epic villains, you know, the Saurons and, you know, people like that. Is there anything different that you have to do when you're approaching a fantasy book for your villains? Not that I can think of. Sometimes the scale of what they're fucking with is different. You know, Sauron, you're trying to take over the entire world. And you sometimes run into that in sci-fi as well, whereas in mystery, it tends to be a slightly smaller scale serial killer type thing. But no, I think it's very much you model it in some ways on your protagonist so that there's a good resonance between the two of them and then go from there. Hmm. Right on, right on. Well, all right, guys, that's good stuff. Thanks for indulging my villain chat. I appreciate it. Uh, I think villains are awesome. And so I like to think about them. All right, guys. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, Do you guys got anything you want to add? Anything we missed? Let me say this about villains. Yes. I think you often have to work harder on your villain's motivation than you do your hero's motivation. 
I think that it's easy for a beginning writer just to say that the villain's motivation is that they're crazy or they're mad. In thrillers, that's really challenging because if the hero is trying to stop the villain from detonating a nuclear bomb, and the villain's trying to detonate a nuclear bomb, you have to have some pretty severe motivation to want to detonate a nuclear bomb, you know? And if your motivation is that the character is just crazy or that they're just angry, whatever it is, like the Joker is kind of the exception to the rule (laughs) in modern storytelling because the Joker Mm. does everything just because he's crazy. He just likes Mm. chaos. But your villain needs to usually have a stronger grounding than that, you know, unless they're getting an Academy Award winning performance to go along with it to help sell it, then they need more grounded motivation. So. I usually spend more time on my villain's motivation than my hero because the hero is usually just trying to stop the villain. So mm-hmm. the villain is the one who needs to have a real good reason why they're doing what they're doing or the reader's not going to buy it. Yeah. And I would also throw in there that it's very fun. And maybe this actually is a difference in fantasy is that if you're doing the multiple point of view books, you can really mix up who's the hero and who's the villain. And have a whole bunch of people that are the hero of their own story or at least are not the villain of their own story who are like i'm doing my thing right Mm. and i am definitely ruining this other person's plans but their plans sucked so doesn't really (laughs) matter um and so yeah if you can picture them as the hero of their own story that does help right on man right on i agree that's good now let me ask you jim uh, just to kind of poke into what you said a little more do you think that aside from Heath Ledger's performance, right? Do you think that we're able to have the Joker as a villain that we all like because of the kind of baggage that he brings from the, like the zeitgeist? Like we all know Batman, we all know the Joker, or is it something specifically that they were doing in that movie to make the Joker such a likable psychopath, so to speak? Uh, I mean, when what Christopher Nolan did, I don't know. The Joker was just a perfect foil to Batman because Batman was trying to represent order. I don't know if Batman represents order, but he was trying to do that. And the Joker was the exact opposite of that. The Joker was just chaos at all costs at every turn. But I don't know. I haven't seen that movie in probably 15 years. Yeah. I mean, if I think about it, he was almost... Not all the way, but he was almost like an anti-hero in that movie a little, wasn't he? Because he also killed some of the gangsters and set their money on fire and did a lot of weird stuff. So maybe that was, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, if you watched it, you could maybe make an argument that that he actually did have a plan all along. I don't know. It's been too long since I've seen the movie. Hmm. I think maybe part of what was so gripping about him was he completely rejected any sense of trying to come up with the words here and I word for a living um <laughs> like any of the preconceived notions it, setting the money on fire is a good one mm. or it's just like there you will never get a handle on what I want which means you can never stop me I'm this malignant thing that will just mutate like that's deeply terrifying if you've got someone who wants money or power that's something that already has a place in your world mm. but this is you know attacking the foundations of what you think how you deal with people and so that's just terrifying Hmm. well said yeah good stuff good stuff sounds like the kind of movie that we should all watch and dive into much deeper at some point in the future so in any event guys that was great and i got nothing else to ask you guys out of stuff very good all right guys for all of us at author news weekly i'm ra mcgee saying 
This meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>